0: Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the R studios, which are on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the studio this week is Vaishnavi Vijaykumar,
1: Hey, Flick, how are you? Hi, Vaj. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, and via remote broadcast, Dr Stuart Richards. Hey, Stewie.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, on tonight's show, we're going to be travelling to a rural Irish village in the 19th century for Sebastian uh, Lelio's recent release, The Wonder, and later we're going to catch up on the latest season of the award-winning HBO series The White Lotus. Uh, but before we get into these reviews, I just want to say thank you to Eloise Ross, Will Cox, and Paul Anthony Nelson for stepping into the hosting duties while I was on the West Coast, and to Carl Chapman for panelling. Uh, this stellar lineup of guest hosts put forward an absolutely smashing selection of interviews and reviews over the last three weeks, and you can, of course, listen back to them all on the RRR website, rrr.org.au, or by subscribing to the Primal Screen podcast. All righty, shall we get into the show? So we're going to start with Sebastian Lelio. So he is a Chilean director uh, who is probably best known for his Oscar-winning film from 2017, A Fantastic Woman. Uh, which told the story of a trans woman called Marina who navigates the difficult aftermath of her boyfriend's death. Um, But listeners may also be familiar with Lelio from his film Disobedience, starring Rachel Wise as a woman who returns to the Orthodox Jewish community um, who rejected her because of her sexuality. And here she kind of reconnects with a close female friend from her childhood, played by Rachel McAdams. And the two women test their boundaries of faith and sexuality. The film, uh, Disobedience, is absolutely exceptional. It's one of my favourites. It's masterfully acted. I think it's often remem- remembered for the, like, the iconic sex scene in which oh White spits in McAdams' mouth. <laughs>
1: I was yeah. gonna say that I was just like <laughs> that scene for me I was yeah. like trying to understand what was happening and then you know when uh friends who I went and saw it with kind of explained it to me and I'm like wow but it was like for those women to just kind of hold that moment so well mm. and be so like involved commit and like, to it as yeah, well I was very impressed
0: yeah and I, I feel like um a lot of people talked about that, that Moment within the sex scene, but is so it's played in such earnest and it is quite a sexy film, but it's also quite you know because it's grappling with faith and sexuality it's also quite a dangerous film in the in the best way mm-hmm. um, so sometimes it gets kind of remembered for the <laughs> wrong reasons but um I absolutely love disobedience if you haven't seen it I think it came out the same year as a fantastic woman, which sounds Maybe wrong, but we can look that up. Yeah, Um, it was was very quickly quickly
2: released afterwards. Probably
0: made at very different times, but at least released in that same year. Um, And you may know Lelio's name from his 2013 film, Gloria, um, about this kind of free-spirited older woman and the realities of her whirlwind relationship with this former naval officer. Uh, It was later remade for English-speaking audiences and titled Gloria Bell and star Julianne Moore. I'm not sure if either of you saw that one. No, no. neither have I. Um, no. <laughs> it's been, I kind of um, I remember it coming out, but I, I didn't end up catching up on that one. But these are uh, Sebastian Lelio's best known films and you'll notice that each of them has a very strong female lead and focuses on women who are predominantly outsiders within a particular setting um, and have to navigate these communities uh, with great difficulty often. Um, mm-hmm. And Lelio's most recent film, A Wonder, really continues this tradition. Um, I do have a short clip that I want to play you, and if I can <laughs> seamlessly connect up to my computer. Um, I just thought this was really powerful and I hope that it communicates um, the setup of it. It's, um, we're going to have a lot to discuss for this one, <laughs> but we'll see how we go. Anna O'Donnell doesn't
2: eat...
0: If a patient in the hospital refuses to eat, we use force.
2: The girl is not to be forced. Nor interrogated or badgered. But she is also not to be denied food, should she ask for it. The girl has lived miraculously without food since her 11th birthday. Miraculously is not how she's done it. The purpose of the watch is to determine exactly how Anna O'Donnell has survived with no food.
1: So you want us to watch her?
2: Yes. On the 14th day, you will each present your separate testimony.
0: How long exactly has it been since the last time the girl ate? Four months. That's impossible. So, The Wonder, uh, which is directed by Sebastian Laleo, is uh, set in a rural Irish village in 1862 it's um, set based on um, tells well based, it's based on a book um, but it tells the story of a British nurse called Elizabeth or Lib as she becomes affectionately known who is tasked with observing this young girl called Anna who hasn't eaten in four months um, and she she claims that she's surviving off um, manna from heaven and um, Laleo adapted this uh, screenplay, um, which was written by Emma Donoghue um, and Alice Birch as well as Laleo, and it's based on the 2016 novel of the same name by Donoghue. Um, and listeners may be familiar with Donoghue's um, 2010 uh, novel Room, which was also adapted to the screen. Um, yeah, did you see that one? Yeah. Vash? Yeah. yeah. Mm. So um, she's got a – yeah, she's, she's kind of oh, – going into very different territory for this, for this um, book. Um, but I think that it sits very much within Lelio's filmography that we've seen so far. So The Wonder stars Florence Pugh as the nurse, uh, Killer Lord Cassidy as the young girl Anna, uh, and Tom, Tom Burke as this kind of very um, charismatic and plucky journalist um, who is also very curious about how Anna is managing to stay alive. Uh, the cinematography is by local Melbourne resident Ari Wegner, who oh, was, wow. yeah, mm. who also was the cinematographer for Jane Campion's The Power mm. of the Dog, one of my favourites. Uh. Um, and also Birch, Alice Birch, who wrote the screenplay, she had previously worked with um, Florence Pugh on Lady Macbeth. Did either of you see? No, I didn't. Oh, no, I, I didn't. highly recommend that one. We can talk all about Florence Pugh. But yeah. her, one of the first things I saw her in was Lady Macbeth and oh. she's the lead in that and not many people saw it. Um, I just found it a really powerful performance. Um, mm. But, yeah. So, Vaish, what did you think <laughs> of The Wonder?
1: You know what, I found it really interesting that the two films that Florence Pugh has out at the moment are Don't Worry (laughs) Darling and this film, and I feel like her being this film and having it so critically acclaimed is such a good counter to all of the mishaps and all of the noise around Don't Worry Darling. Her performance is absolutely stunning in this Mm. film as, like, you know and I think it's quite signature to both um I guess to Lilio's like previous film Disobedience where having women who are pushing the conventions and the beliefs of men who are technically in power and mm. um putting being quite forthright in their position on what they believe is right and having that kind of caretaker of you know vulnerable people and, and I just thought her performance in this was amazing like mm. phenomenal and I kind of didn't know where the film was going to go. Like there was moments where I felt like it could go down like the quite supernatural exorcism route. But then in some ways it kind of moved more in in a way like the beguiled, you know, where it's just like um, it's more kind of like mystery and trying to uncover like this kind of mysterious happening and you're not too sure whether – yeah, whether it's something steeped in reality or whether it's something fantastical. Yeah. yeah.
0: I heard that um, Lalia was drawn to this because of coming from in, in Chile with the whole um, uh, sort of religious dictatorship (laughs) Mm. and he's one of the kind of best known directors to kind of this kind of post dictatorship um, world Um, and so I thought that was kind of interesting that he was drawn to it and I I remember reading um, that um, Emma Donoghue was drawn to it for this idea of how this story plays into our post Oh, post-pandemic, post-lockdown, we're definitely not post-pandemic, but where we're in this like pandemic scene, I heard it referred to.
1: Mm. And
0: we're having forced to spend time with um, kind of being made aware of different belief systems. You know, you've got people who are anti-vax, maybe in your own family, in your own friend group, um, in your own workplace, and how that really challenges our own beliefs perhaps. Um, and I thought that was really such different positions that they're both coming from. But both talking about this treatment so removed from what the actual setup is which is based on a real life uh, oh, historical yeah so oh, wow. so fasting girls were very much um it's usually young girls who did who were um presumably starving themselves um but it is sort of a link to i'm surviving because jesus is um, you know this god is keeping me alive Mm. um it's often referenced as this kind of very early precursor to anorexia um and it and a lot of these young girls would also have um evidence of stigmata so that's where you've got the marks of the crucifixion so like Bleeding from the hands yeah. and feet. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's got a really mm. fascinating history, but I love that two of the main creatives involved with this, Lelio and Donahue, are both talking about it or approaching it or drawn to it from very different places, really. Um, mm. Vice, you mentioned this this um, gendered divide, and I hope that clip kind of played into that a little bit, where you do have a panel of men who are instructing Lib to watch this young girl and – not, not do anything, not intervene. She's <laughs> distinctly not meant to intervene but to witness this young girl who, um, as, she, as basically her body disintegrates. And it's really quite a – it's a simple premise and it's a very shocking premise for the film. Um, Stewie, I understand you watched The Wonder today. Yes. Fresh thoughts. Fresh
2: thoughts. <laughs> it's interesting that um, approach by the two creators to talk about belief – because the opening scene is all about belief. Um, I won't really spoil what it was, but when it started, I thought I was in the wrong cinema. I
0: had the same thought. Did you have that as well, Vash? <laughs> yes, yes.
2: Because yeah. it so, happened to me earlier this year with everything, everywhere, all at once. It was you went into Tildes... the wrong cinema? No, they they changed the cinema without telling oh. us. And then that oh. Tilda Swinton <laughs> film played. Oh, 3,000 oh, no, Years of Longing? No. Yes. Oh and my I was like, God. this isn't a Michelle Yeoh. So I thought that had happened so again. Funny. Yeah. Um, and I won't say what happens, but it is all about belief. It's about setting yeah. up, you know, all of these different characters that really deeply yeah. believe their positions.
0: I don't think it's a spoiler. I think we can talk about this because I think it's a really important part of it. So I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm well, usually well, very anti-spoiler. Yeah. But well, let's discuss how it opens. Film,
2: it opens on a film set mm. and it, it kind of, it, I think it pans across... This um, soundstage with all of these different, um, you know, filming equipments, um, and then it kind of I think it tracks forward into this boat. Yeah. I think and then and there's a voiceover which is revealed to be you know someone who's involved. Yeah. Uh, saying that you know this is a film. These characters in this film firmly believe um, you know what they believe, and we ask you to believe in this story.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. And believe and believe in them. Yes. Um, Which is really profound.
0: Yes. It's a very curious start to the film. And, you know, we were mentioning, we were talking a bit about Lelio's previous films, Um, a few of them which are not period pieces as such, but they are set in very specific communities like the Mm. Orthodox Jewish community. Um, I'm trying to think of what country (laughs) A Fantastic Woman is set. It's been so many years since I've seen that film. But they are set in very... um, There's a specificity to when they're set and this uh, the wonder is no different. So it's curious that he decides to start with this um, kind of uh, fourth wall breaking Mm. start where he's acknowledging you're in a film. Um, Vaish, what did you think about the start?
1: Honestly, it was kind of the same. I actually looked to my husband who um, we watched it together and I was just like – are we in the wrong film? have I just walked into Grand Designs or something like that? Um, And I thought it was a really interesting way because, like, all of the film stills and everything that we'd seen is, like, you know, Florence Pugh in period clothing Mm. in this stark Irish wilderness. So when you kind of – when they kind of show you that kind of behind-the-scenes kind of thing, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like them saying, like, there is more to this film than what you're actually seeing Mm. and you kind of have to, like – lean in to, to you know, what these people's belief systems are, even if it may be in stark contrast to what you think and just kind of go with it. Like you mm. just actually have to go with it. And actually it's interesting the whole idea of the watching, which like Florence Pugh has to do throughout the film. Yeah, And I feel like us as audience members are almost like the watcher. Like you're literally watching all these events unfold and are actually rendered quite helpless to do... Anything about the situation except mm. watch
0: yes, and even mm. when there's definitely some quite shocking things that we see on screen from characters we may not have expected it from um i so i I feel like as i didn't love the start with the with a whole fourth wall breaking my reason and i get I get the um you know how that's justified, and you're right. It's like all about storytelling, and we're getting asked to be brought into this world. I just think it didn't need to be there, and I think it didn't lean into it. That would be my only crit- criticism about this film. If, if, if you're going to set that up, mm. there was only two other occasions when that then gets referenced. There's a direct address to the camera um, about two, th- uh, one thirty in, and then at the end, it also returns as well to this set. Mm. But other than that, there's no other. Um, reference to it. So I felt like it didn't need to be there and perhaps in an earlier edit it had had more engagement with that sort of fourth wall and this idea of storytelling but I just feel like it's such a strong story on its own that it didn't need those creative yeah. decisions. I might also be someone who doesn't usually like that. So I didn't actually <laughs> like that um, creative technique when it was used in scenes from a marriage. Did you see that um, with Oscar Isaacs and Jessica Chastain, that TV yes, series? Yes, I did. I watched no. a few
1: episodes. Ah, and I I yeah. found it quite hard and I was like to watch because it's such yeah. a difficult thing that it's grappling with. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have to step back <laughs> into this at another time. Yes. but But I do understand your point because – you're right. Like I I did feel like when it was referenced that second time in that direct address to the mm. camera, I had forgotten that that earlier thing happened yeah. and this was kind of yeah. a reference back to that, and I didn't really I was like the character that that did it didn't feel necessarily that pivotal yes. um to the film in terms of changing the direction or shaping the direction. So I I was like are you meant to be the writer? Are you you know mm. like what is what is your purpose? In playing that narrative role in the story,
0: yeah, and I, I thought that it came across quite well. That idea of of different takes on on how you get through it. I mean, like it's obviously a really bloody rough time in history that they're yeah. documenting.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> um,
0: Stu, I feel like I, I took we, it took us on a different direction, to talk about creative <laughs> decisions. But back yeah. to your review of this, um, yeah. yeah. What did what did you think of the film?
2: Well, when I, when it all started unfolding, it dawned on me that it's a folk horror film essentially Mm. which is fitting given last week yes the show was all about (laughs) focus
0: yes so
2: you you know it's this isolated community that have a a distorted value system Mm. Um, usually it's like paganistic rituals but in this in this you know world it's it's christianity yeah and the land is so important those really great Um, you know, long shots of Florence Pugh, like walking to the house. Mm. Um, No one ever takes her there. She just has to schlep all this (laughs) way herself. (laughs) And and then this isolated community that just have Mm. such a a firm belief in this, um, you know, this like miracle that it's actually killing someone right in front of them and Mm. they're all just so devout. In that sense, I kind of wanted a bigger finish. Oh, really? Uh, so, Vaish mentioned before, maybe it'll go down the exorcism route.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, which I was kind of expecting that as well. Mm. I, I think I wanted, yeah, I just wanted a bigger payoff in that's, that sense.
0: Yeah, That's so interesting because I thought that um, if we just focus on Lib as a character, so Florence Pugh's character, um, I thought that her... There is an element of monstrosity in the film yes. uh, it 's yeah. just not where we expect it and I think that what stood out to me was more so the background monstrosity, so what this landscape, what the people of this village have have gone through I think it 's very important that she is a British nurse coming yes. onto Irish land. Um, and the atrocities that they have suffered through. And we get glimpses of that. It's never that direct. And even when there is a moment where something uh, horrific from the past is recounted, it's actually done secondhand. It's not through the, main, the person who was affected. They almost shut it down. Um, it's through gossip um, and through hearing something. And she is very much an outsider. And I actually loved the layering of her as – She's just an interesting character and I don't think she she, she's she got her own demons as well. But I just think it layered so well into the history of Ireland and the trauma that can, you know, how they come to terms with it. And I think that made me more sympathetic, I could say, to some of the beliefs. Like you can understand why that would come yeah. about because they need something to yeah. believe in. And maybe if we fix... It's almost like, maybe if we sacrifice this one young girl uh, mm. that will in some way go towards um, fixing some of the ills, but there's a dark it's a, i don't know there's a lot of darkness in this film, both literally <laughs> uh, yeah. with the lighting and also just with the content there's a lot yeah. there isn't there
1: it was it was a um, like I expected it to be a dark film, but i don't expect it to be that dark mm. I think and I think you're exactly right like I think when people have been through a difficult time particularly the potato famine in Ireland like yeah. you know like so many families and the population were like devastated by that they need that belief in a higher kind of um system or like something greater that will kind of get them out of this situation mm. in order to kind of continue living and I also what I found really interesting was how Florence Pew's own well the character her character's own kind of personal experience played into how she reacted to the situation that she mm. was placed in because it was like this kind of layered kind of experience of like what she was going through personally but then also the job that she was tasked to do
0: mm. and the question of the mother at the centre of this, uh, lots of different mothers within this film. I, I actually I have to give a shout out to um, Killer Lord Cassidy as Anna. I thought she was really remarkable, and actually the time that these this young girl um, spends on on screen with Florence Pugh, I just thought there was a really lovely chemistry, very understated. And I thought about the sternness of Lib which is often used to speak out against this, this kind of panel of men and some disagreements she has with them and what they want from the experiment, which is basically what it is. Um, but then also her sternness doesn't really, it shifts, it has a lot of tones to it because then she also uses it to reprimand Anna in a very loving way, I think. You know, yeah. there's this lovely tension between the two. Um yeah, it's a it's a curious one, isn't it?
2: Um, and I just want to give a shout out to the composer of the yes, film. Yes,
0: we have so, to talk
2: about it. So Matthew Herbert mm. um, has also composed all of Lelio's films. So Gloria, Yeah, um, a Fantastic Woman, and uh, Disobedience, um, in particular. But in this, the the score it's it's almost something like The Witch, where yes. <laughs> there's all these like choral voices. Like mm. at first, I thought someone was whispering in the cinema, so I kept on like turning around. <laughs> but it turns out it was the, the actual score has all of these um like uh, these whispers almost, yeah. particularly when she leaves the village to go out to the house, and it is almost like you know the the ghosts of. The famine almost coming back to haunt. Mm. Um, and maybe um, pushing or, her
0: away a bit because she yeah. is relatively unwanted in this village. Yeah. I I think the score is tremendous. I actually did try really hard to find a track from the film to play tonight. I couldn't tonight find it. I couldn't find it. I really hope that it does come out. I thought the score was tremendous. And we spoke before about these different places that um, two of the the creative team are coming from with this and you know Donahue's point that she wanted she feels it's a very contemporary film the soundscape is so contemporary so you mentioned before the whispers but there's also this uh almost like dark electronica I'm so bad at describing music but it's that's what it sounded to me like and I thought that was such a curious selection. They could have gone with something that was very much in conversation with the time period that really sets the scene. But the scene is already set through this beautiful cinematography, the costuming, everything is there. They even clearly say this is Island at this time. Mm -hmm. So the soundscape was able to embody a completely different space and it's almost a psychological space, Um, maybe Lib's psychological um, Mm. interior thoughts. And I love the soundscape so much. I thought it really so added good. something. It really lifted the film, made it menacing. Um, you mentioned before, Stu, that you weren't that happy with the. That you were hoping it to go into a maybe different um, ending. But the, it goes places with the soundscape for sure. It is a very slow film though. We should actually... We should warn listeners about. that. Some people don't like that sort of thing. It's a,
2: but it's a slow burn, though. Very so slow burn, yes. It, was, it, it is slow, but I was never bored.
0: Yes, I was yeah. on
2: the edge of my seat the entire time.
0: However, all three of us saw The Wonder in a cinema theatre and it will be coming out on the streaming service Netflix later this month, actually really soon, November 16th. I wonder how Netflix audiences will respond to this. I think it's a really different film to watch at home. (laughs) Um, I know I'm a bit of a nerd, but I would encourage you to see it at the cinema if you could because of the score. It's a big screen film. Yeah, it's definitely a big screen. It's a small film in a lot of ways, but I think it, it has so many powerful moments. Definitely needs to be seen on the big screen, in a
1: darkened theater as well. I yeah. think that kind of spooky element to it adds to the kind of unease you feel throughout oh, watching the totally.
0: film. Totally, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, it is really beautiful. Um, if you want to see The Wonder, which I think we all think that you should go see, uh, it is currently streaming, uh, screening at <laughs> local and independent cinemas. But it will be available to stream. On Netflix on November 16. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Stewie Richards, Vaishnavi Vajrakumar, and myself. Flick forward. On tonight's show, we're catching up on some new releases, uh, both streaming and on the silver screen. And die-hard fans will likely likely recognise the track I just played, which was, of course, the opening theme of the show we're about to review. Uh, I am, of course talking about the smash hit comedy drama series, The White Lotus. So the series was created by Mike White for HBO and streamed here in Australia on Binge. Um, Both season one and season two follow guests and employees of a fictional White Lotus resort chain. Um, whose stay in different ways becomes affected by their various dysfunctions. Uh, so the first season was set in Hawaii and for the la- this latest season we are headed to uh, sunny Sicily and here is a little sneak peek for you.
2: Whenever I stay at a White Lotus, I always have a memorable time. Always. Welcome to the White Lotus in Sicily. La Dolce
1: Vita. You guys are here to learn about your Sicilian roots. Sounds like a fun boys trip.
0: Wasn't supposed to be a boys trip. We're on a family vacation right now, and it's just the three of us, because all the women in our family hate you. So the first season of The White Lotus was the most awarded series at the 74th Emmys. Uh, it won a total of uh, 10 awards, including, and not surprisingly at all really, um, Outstanding Supporting Actress for Jennifer Coolidge. And I am delighted that Coolidge is back for season two of The White Lotus as the wonderful Tanya. She stars alongside Aubrey Plaza, Adam DeMarco, Tom Hollander and. Even Laura Dern's voice as the estranged wife of Lothario Dominic, who's played by Michael Imperioli from another hit HBO series, The Sopranos. So, Stewie, I know that you are a big White Lotus fan because you've been posting about it on the socials. (laughs) (laughs) For listeners who are perhaps not familiar with the first season, um, can you tell us a bit about that one?
2: So season 1 was set in Hawaii and uh it's a up up upscale hotel um and uh the uh, who the, the manager was played by Murray Bartlett who yes. also won an Emmy
0: yes. uh, last,
2: this year and he leads a, a group of downtrodden hotel workers who have to put up with all of the shit from <laughs> the awful rich people that uh, that stay at the hotel and what happens with all of these characters is they are presented as being awful or lovely and then they almost kind of cross paths mm. where the, the people we have pegged as being absolute assholes end up getting depth and characters like Jennifer Coolidge who we love so much uh ends up being one of the, the biggest villains of the show, <laughs> I would say, that's potentially a spicy take but <laughs> is awful when the more you get to know her. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. Yeah. And I should also say I'm a big fan of Mike White, full stop, because yeah. he um, had a stint on all his reality television shows before going before making White Lotus. He was on two seasons of The Amazing Race with his dad, Mel, and I didn't know that, actually. You didn't
1: gonna, know that either. <laughs> I was like, you've really gone into the fandom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I was like, I'm a big fan too. And then when you said that, I was like, oh, maybe I'm not a big fan. you went
2: deep. And then he went and then he was good friends with uh, Jeff Probst, who's the host oh, of, Survivor of, yes. of Survivor and producer uh, of Survivor. And for a few years he was giving all of this feedback and advice to Jeff about what works and what doesn't mm. work. And then one season he's like, I'm going to go on it. So he was on (laughs) the David versus Goliath season where he was on the Goliath tribe of people who had been winning at life, basically, (laughs) against people who, you know, have have harder backgrounds and Mm. have struggled against all odds. And he goes really well. And throughout White Lotus, a lot of his castmates make cameos. Uh, in the show so in the episode one of season two that opening scene where one of the characters is talking to two women on the beach uh, they were two survivor castmates of Mike White basically he <laughs> told his friends from the show I'm filming in Sicily come on over and be on the show <laughs>
0: I can't believe that and what a fascinating thing for the David and Goliath theme because I think that that runs through both seasons of The White Lotus um you know reviews of The White Lotus um started off kind of like promising but then some people you know obviously as always there's some criticisms that pop up but it was you know like they like I said before one of the most highly awarded shows um mainly for the fact that it really is a funny uh, satire, interrogation of wealth and disparity between um, these two very different social classes and the hotel is kind of this perfect setting for it. Mm. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I'm kind of Mm – I feel like Mike White is – I can't believe this. So usually on comedies they would have a whole writing team and Mike White is a solo writer. He, oh, wow, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. for both seasons, I'm pretty sure, at least for the first season, I know that he wrote the whole thing. And he wrote it in almost like this lockdown um, haze. So it's really kind of a fascinating premise, really, when you think about I think
1: it. It helps the consistency as well and the tone mm. of the episodes. Like, I feel like it has such a distinct tone and humour. It
0: makes sense that he wrote the whole series. Yes. And it's interesting because it's like (laughs) maybe I'm just like how are they managing to stay funny this whole time? (laughs) But legitimately like, yeah, he he wrote the whole thing so they they – yeah, it delivers each episode. Um, so, yeah, that's a good – that's a little good precursor to the first season, which actually starts with a murder mystery sort of vibe. Uh, you have a body that is on a plane and you don't really know the details. There is a young fiancé uh, – not fiancé, newlywed, um, played by Jake. I forgot his name. Um, he was in Girls. Anyhow, he is kind of – He was. Um, he's kind of this – Likeable, well, seemingly likable, but by the first episode, yeah. you definitely don't like him. Um, yeah. But anyway, it started with this murder mystery, and Mike White apparently said he just did that because he wanted to um, get people. That's what audiences want. <laughs> it's not, it's not really a murder mystery. However, yeah. Yeah. season two of The White Lotus, we again start with a body uh, that is um, discovered multiple. on a bit. multiple bodies multiple that are discovered bodies. on the beach. The are oh. up the ante. Um, yeah. So yeah, what did we, what did we think of the the second season? I've only watched one episode. Stewie, you've been very uh studious and you have yeah. watched two you got in before us. Yeah. I was trying to buy shop air and we're yeah. like, when did the second one? Because I checked it this morning and it wasn't available.
2: It dropped at one PM. Look at you. You're going the extra <laughs> yeah. mile. Yeah.
0: So what's your take on it so far? I know we're in two apps in.
2: Well, I, I think that I mean both are about class, mm-hmm. you know, the have the haves and the have nots. I think season one was Primarily about race and yes. the locals. Yes. And obviously, there are multiple intersections with that. I think season two is predominantly about gender and sex uh, and how class inequality can intersect with those. Mm. So there are there's the three men of the family who are traveling uh, together. One of them has a backstory, they've done something in Hollywood that has you Know alienated all the women in the family. There are two sex workers who are trying to sneak into the hotel. Um, then there's Jennifer Coolidge with her now husband. Uh, who else is there? On oh, Jennifer Coolidge has brought along her assistant, and this yes. and the, and the <laughs> assistant has assistant. to like have to hide away from the husband.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, people being treated like objects um it's so horrible I (laughs) found like
1: all the moments where her assistant was being really badly treated I was just like this poor girl and it's hard because I do feel like in this second season you do empathize well I personally empathize a bit more with Jennifer Coolidge's character and the circumstances that she kind of Finds herself in, and she's clearly someone who's like highly anxious, doesn't want to be alone. Um, you know, is quite tethered to her assistant as like an emotional support system. Mm. Um, but then also, you can't excuse the way that she treats her either.
0: And it almost seems like deflection. She gets treated, mistreated by her husband, and then puts that onto this this poor assistant. And you and you see like the very obvious psychological machinations <laughs> of this poor poor woman um, who. Uh, Has had obviously a a privileged life but emotionally bankrupt. Um, Well,
2: she's been emotionally abused by many people and she reacts by using all of these people – around her. And because she has money, she can use and discard all of these yeah. assi- assistants and servants. Um, the best character, though, is Aubrey Plaza. Oh, I <laughs> love her so much. I was
0: hoping we would get a chance to so get Aubrey. <laughs> yeah. She's easily She's my favourite. <laughs> oh, my God,
1: yes.
2: She has perfected this face that just says Deadpan. internal screaming.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> It's the panicked eyes with the frozen face. I love her yeah. so much. Uh, I think, especially in this film, um, film TV series, I think she's got given a lot to work with. Um, there's a fantastic exchange because she, she's basically the wife of of this um, tech bro who who you know she met when they were in college, but then he's just come into a huge amount of money. So they they kind yeah. of like. New to this particular kind of lifestyle, and they're traveling with his work partner, who is a very, I would say, unlikable man. Uh
1: (laughs) It's like (laughs) a Ken and Barbie situation. Exactly,
0: a Ken and Barbie situation. There's a wonderful little um, sting about whether who watches Ted Lasso. I won't ruin it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so much great dialogue between these characters and I am very much hooked. I've only watched one episode, same as Vaish. Um, Vaish, you know, season one, uh, very much focused. I think there was a strong undercurrent of race that was connected up with these power relations. Like Stewie said, we're kind of st- tipping more into the gender relations. Um, what's been your take on both seasons so far?
1: Yeah, like I think yeah, definitely the classism is one of the things that I found the most interesting. And aside from the actual um, story, like what I really loved was that both series take actors that are not necessarily that well-known and put them in these main character roles and really allow them to shine. Like for so long, like, you know, Murray Bartlett, he's been known for a variety of different roles as like, you know, Carrie's gay best friend and yes. like Sex in the City and he was in Looking <laughs> and Um, you know, um Tales of the City, like so many of these different characters. But he's given this opportunity in this series to really shine and show like his kind of like comedic um chops and I kind of really <laughs> love that. And I think, you know, with this new season, like the setup of the characters and the dynamics and what could potentially happen as these stories and experiences and, you know, kind of intersect. It's just you can kind of start to see where the intersections and the the complexities are forming Mm. and you just – it's just so skilled at like creating intrigue yes. and mystery. Like I'm already like itching to leave the <laughs> show and go home and watch the <laughs> second episode. And yeah, the gender um, aspect of it is is really interesting. Like I think, you know, even just in the dynamic of like um, Aubrey Plaza and her relationship with her husband, like, you know, she's kind of positioned as this kind of like very lawyer-esque Ball breaker kind of personality, totally,
0: absolutely. And
1: then you know he's like the like a very archetypal kind of um, characters, and he's the nerdy bro who's like you know knows that he's I don't know potentially punching above his weight, so yeah. he's kind of plays more of a submissive role.
0: And, and then and you can't get away from the fact that they're both people of color,
1: exactly, and how
0: that plays into this strange dynamic between the white. But, you know, Ken and Barbie, that's not their character names but the, you'll know not, which but... characters we're talking about based on that. Yeah. And you can't separate it from that because there's this kind of alpha energy that is expected um, and then this subservience that is also expected of the wife.
1: Yes, totally. And you know what, like I really love – like the different characters that Aubrey Plaza has played over her career. Like I love her in Parks and Rec Rec. as this like weird goth. And then she was in – is it a Christmas – Season, it was the
2: um, the Clear Duvall. Um, oh, yeah, Christmas film. single all the way. No, that was another game. No, Christmas no, girl. it was um, <laughs> ha- happier,
1: happier season. season, the happier yes, season, yeah. of course. Um, and I loved her character in that. And then in here, she's also taking on that more kind of serious but like same kind of sarcastic biting humor, which I really in, um, enjoy. But yeah, Jennifer Coolidge as well. Like, I really love um, her like there is a very signature kind of nature yes. to her performance like <laughs> you know her intonation is so signature to the characters that she plays and like I will always think of her as Stiffler's hot mom like yes. I just feel like yeah. that's <laughs> just like no matter what character she plays like Cinderella story or whatever she's just stipless mom to me yeah. like forever yeah. but like yeah. her, her um her character in this um series like I think we're gonna see a very Interesting trajectory mm. for her, um, mm. particularly in the dynamic with her, um, yeah, newlywed hub- husband.
0: Yeah, well, Mike White actually, he was uh, both seasons are uh, and the writing around both was actually with her as his central character. So yeah. she's the inspiration for the both, really. and she
2: turned him down initially. Yeah, oh. I did so hear he, about this. Yeah, so he called. He called her and said. There's no show if you don't do it. No mm, pressure, wow. <laughs> but you can do it. Yeah, because mm. she didn't. She didn't believe in herself that she had the chops for the role. Well,
0: she's oh, so wow. she's so often put as the um, secondary character. Yes. You know, like we're thinking about um, best in show. Um, all of the work she's done with those those filmmakers. So so often secondary and kind of like, like you said Stifler's mum. She's kind of this like joke, walk-in role. Mm. Um, but she does hold it together because, you, like you said, Vice, she's kind of got this like elements where you're sympathetic to her. And I think because we've got that first season where you've got the setup and then with this one I think they're able to explore some of the more complex, complex relations that are going on and particularly with paid labour. But whether it's yes. sex work or it's assistant being a PA or just even that thing, thing of being um, dependent on your husband's income. Mm. Um, so we get lots of different ways in which how do you have intimacy with someone that you're paying?
1: Yeah. yeah I think that's a good point. It's like it's all about people's relationship with money,
0: mm. you
1: know. And um, I think in particular with this season, I, I think we're going to see it like, like in terms of like the morality around that, it's never clear cut. Mm. Like even when like the um, two um, husband and wife that you spoke about who are people of colour, like even when they talk about and kind of criticise like, I don't want to call them Ken and Barbie, but they're Ken and Barbie now. <laughs> um, but like when they criticise them for like not being aware of like the news and all those kind of things, in some ways as well it's like a kind of a question of, well, like you're now in this circle now. Like yes. you are in this like like – position of privilege really to be like, um, yeah, like experiencing all these services of this very fine hotel. So it's like a question of, yes, you are judging them, but like, you're also in a position of privilege now. And, and you're benefiting dynamic. from it. You're benefiting, exactly, yeah. you're benefiting from and,
0: it. And how much interrogation is actually happening exactly, when you yeah. are one of very much a, a player in it. Yeah, I, there's so much to unpack on this. I'm curious to see how it's going to go. I think yeah. it's going to get well received because, I mean, it's hard to it's a hard act to follow when you've got such a, Popular first season, um, Stewie. As a mega fan, are you <laughs> are, are you feeling like you've got high hopes for this season the season two of the White Lotus?
2: I do. Mm. I uh, the the Ken and Barbie couple. There's a really interesting scene with them uh, in episode two, where at first I was getting a bit frustrated with them because they they come off as just being very one dimensional mm. assholes. But you, you know, in true Mike White fashion, we start to see glimmers of depth with them mm. in episode two, which is interesting. And with um, uh, Jennifer Coolidge, I think Mike White just has lots of fun with her. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few um, uh, very kind of physical comedy moments <laughs> in episode mm. two. So I'm really excited to see where it's going to go and yeah, and the direction all the characters are going to take.
0: And we haven't even talked about the uh, intergenerational boys' trip, um, yeah, which and- is the great-grandfather... No, grandfather, grandfather, father, son. Yeah, it's getting confused there with the relationship. Um, so interesting as a as a real study in a particular kind of masculinity, and um, yeah, I'm actually really I'm really loving that as well. Um,
1: what I kind of like about it as well, it's kind of like the sins of the father. Yes, you know, it's like yes. how the grandfather and the way that he's behaved has impacted on the flaws in yeah. the father, and then the son seeing these very kind of like. Problematic um, and at times misogynistic pr- portrayals, like, you know, or like misogynistic kind of traits in his father and grandfather, how then it's kind of impacted on the kind of person who he is, you know. Yeah. Like, coming yeah. from a generation of where, like, you know, language around gender dynamics is, you know, something that he is quite cognizant of. Yeah. Um, and he just sits back and is like an observer to, like, very ludicrous kind of acts by one of those senior members Mm. of his family.
0: And we also have a a sort of a foray of a discussion into ageism and the value of youth in these economies as well and how it's often bought through the fact of, you know, having Botox and plastic surgery and and things like that. But Mm. ultimately it's really hard to escape the the passage of time Um, unless you get, you know, what is it called Chiro- Chirogenically frozen yeah. <laughs> but anyhow i feel like this this at least one episode in i'm already kind of very i'm very i'm very much hooked i hope um others are as well. If you want to check out the second season of The White Lotus, it is currently streaming on Binge. You have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Vaishnavi Vajerkumar, Stewie Richards and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show we reviewed Sebastian Lelio's captivating period film The Wonder, which is currently playing in cinemas but will be available to stream on Netflix from November 16. And we finished up the hour with the TV. TV series, The White Lotus, which is currently streaming on Binge. You can, of course, listen back online at rrr.org.au or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. But while you're on the website, Vaish, I feel like you might as well go in the draw for this wonderful giveaway we've got.
1: Yes, so here at Primal Screen, we're doing a double pass um, giveaway to a Triple R subscriber screening of She Said, who you would have um, heard about earlier. Um, It's at 6.30pm Wednesday, November 16th at Cinema Nova. Um, You can collect your tickets at the door. Um, So She Said um, is by Emmy Award-winning director Maria Schrader. Um, It's a thrilling story about the power of truth and the inspiring journey of women who spoke up for the sake of other women, for future generations, and for themselves. Um, and more details at rrr.org.au. Uh,
0: make sure you check that out. Um, before we sign off for today, um, Stewie, uh, we were chatting off-air about a recommend, hot recommendation that you had. I know you're fresh off the Adelaide Film Festival, which we you had, the, we had the pleasure of um, script, <laughs> getting your update on that. Yes. What, are, what are some of the, the hot recommend, recommendations you want to leave us with?
2: Uh, Triangle of Sadness of uh, Which yes. is so comes out on the 22nd of December Yes, I can second off.
0: that recommendation
2: Wonderful film And uh, Banshees of Inner Sharon Which is directed by Martin McDonagh Yes um, Who did In Bruges and Three Billboards Starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson uh, Set in like the 1920s island off this like fictional island and yeah it's
0: great I'm so excited for that one I did forget the title of that one and I was like what was it again I'm so excited to see that um Vaishan Stewie thank you so much for joining me tonight it's been a pleasure chatting about the these new releases
1: thanks for listening to Primal Screen
0: a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the R website.